So yes, that's what I want. <laughs> Just relaxing into life. What do you think keeps us from that? Why can't every day be a day that we relax into life? Well, I have a few ideas. I, I, I think there are some things that occur to me that stand in the way of that. One of them is the changeability of the world. It seems like every day, no matter what we're up to, some part of our life, even as one part of our life is coming together, some other part of our life is unhinging a little bit, doing something wonky, doing something we don't like. We're starting off, as Nancy alluded, uh, w with a new point of uh, inspiration this week. We're using Pima Chodron's book called Living Beautifully with Uncertainty and Change. And what I love about Pima Chodron, this is uh, kind of our first foray here, at least in many years, into using her writings. And what I love about her is it's a very unique voice. She's an American Buddhist nun living in Nova Scotia. So, so when you... <laughs> What I love about, I mean, if you think about what I love about diversity is not so much how diversity looks, uh, looks like on the outside, but, but the diversity of a unique and powerful voice uh, does wonders for us. And what I like about this, uh, you know, I, I'm probably kind of a closet Buddhist in a way, a, a, a little bit. I mean, I love science of mind, don't, don't get me wrong. But there is something about Buddhism, the simplicity of it and the idea of enlightenment in it that are very appealing to me. And yet, most of the great Buddhist teachers uh, make it hard to approach Buddhism. Uh, I mean, for, as much as I love the Dalai Lama, it, it's like you, you know, when you read one of his books on the path to enlightenment, the trouble with it is there are some vows along the way. There's a vow of celibacy. There's a vow of poverty. There's a, do you know what I mean? It's like they up the ante a little bit around this Buddhist thing, and it seems decidedly un-American. <laughs> we, we, you know, one of the major, major tenets of Buddhism Right, it, it is to have unattachment to uh, n not only our stuff but our way of being. How un-American is that? We love our stuff. <laughs> I love I, I love my stuff, and yet, and yet, Pima Chodron would say, and I agree that we get in trouble around our stuff. And more even than just the stuff, more even just our desire to have more and be more and, and do more, because I think all those are laudable things. And in fact, on many Sundays, we'll, we'll teach you how to use that law that Nancy talked about actually to uh, kind of acquire more, if you will. And there's totally nothing wrong with that. It makes total sense. All of us deserve to live the good life. Pima Chodron, though, would say that part of our maybe unique Americanism around having stuff is actually what's keeping us from enjoying life. And it isn't the stuff. It's not the stuff itself. It's not even the, the desire for a better life. It's not that either. What it is, is our attachment to wanting to lock it into place for good. And here's the idea of change. Here's the, the power, I think, of this teaching is the way it works for most of us is some area of our life sorts itself 
finally, with a lot of prayer, with a lot of effort, with a lot of work, sorts itself finally into a very appealing form. Now, maybe it's a job that, uh, that takes that form. Maybe it's a marriage that takes that form. Maybe it's a family situation. Maybe it's finally, you know, getting, getting your house in order the way you really like it. And you no sooner have that then what? The ends start unraveling a little bit and oh, it pisses us off because we, we finally had that relationship working just the way we love it. Or we had, do you know what I mean? And then some change comes up and oh my gosh, the grrr gets into it because how dare the world change something that I finally got working right. Payment Children says, and I believe this is the source of our misery. It isn't the stuff. It isn't the relationship. It isn't what happened. It's our resistance to having the changes happen. This is a universe of change. And I think here's one of the reasons that Buddhism is often difficult for the Western mind. We're invited to give up the idea of wanting things in a certain way. We're invited to to give up the necessity for life turning out the way we expect it to or or, or would want to choose to it. We're invited to more kind of go with the flow. And that doesn't sound all that appealing to many of us. Many of us like what we want and we like it how we want it and we'll do just about anything to keep it that way once we get it there. And oh my gosh, that's so not the way the universe works. The universe is always changing, always. No matter what you can imagine going on in your life, uh, give it 20 minutes, (laughs) right? So talking about change, I want to break us into this idea with a joke about change. So a couple days into his trial, George, the man accused of committing the crimes, stood up and asked for permission to approach the judge. Your honor, said George, I would like to change my plea from innocent to guilty of all charges. Well, the judge kind of furrows his brow and says, if you're guilty, why didn't you say so in the first place? You could have saved the, the court all this time and the witnesses their effort. Why, why didn't you tell us right away that you're guilty? Meekly, George explained, well, when the trial began, I was sure I was innocent, but now I've heard all the evidence. <laughs> And I think that's where I am. You know, I've read through the book a couple times, and I'm here to say, I'm guilty of all of my own misery. And I didn't even know it. And so I want to read through some of the charges today on myself. I I think the best place to to start when you've made a mess of things is to own up to it. And so here I go. And if some of these resonate with you, well, that's better. But I'm going to get it off my chest anyway. First of all, I want to plead guilty to trying to keep and maintain a 30-year-old body. (laughs) There is... There is something in such resistance in my heart to the aging process that I am totally guilty. I think that I should be able to eat like I was 20 or 30. I think that I should be able to exercise like I was 20 or 30, which means no exercise. Do you know what I mean? It's like I look in the mirror and I'm fiddling with my hair. What, What the hell is this white thing growing in? 
I am so in resistance and I plead guilty. (laughs) Another thing is, I'm pleading guilty to wishing to cultivate and lock in some idea of a perfect marriage. I'm guilty of it. Now, there are moments when the, the relationship I have with my partner seems like perfect bliss, and then... 20, the 20-minute 20 rule maybe here is like 20 minutes later, something has changed, and it pisses me off. I'm in resistance to it. You know, Daniel and I are talking a little bit about maybe him going back to school, and a part of me is so joyous that he would want to do that, so joyous with the idea of growth and, and change in me. And then another part of me is like going, but wait a minute, he'd be gone in the evening. It has financial implications, right? Even though a part of me is so in favor of this, so so loving the idea he would want to do this for himself, another part of me is like, oh, but the changes this could bring. I'm so in resistance to that. And no matter how you have some kind of a relationship organized, it's always going to be filled with changes. One or the other of you is always making a change in your life. Uh, You you know, we were laughing the other day because for probably about a year now, we've both been in good health and and our careers are going pretty well. And, you know, kind of a a good list of things that we have in common that are working right. And uh, and how long is that going to last? We have bad days from now and then, but any couple that's been together for 10 years will tell you now and now, now and then, you even have a bad year, right? Oh, I'm going to be in resistance to that kind of change. <laughs> Another thing I'm guilty of, and this one affects you all, so I'm laying it right out on the table, I am guilty of trying to figure out and lock in the perfect church experience. It's madness, right? (laughs) First of all, it doesn't exist. There isn't perfection, right? Some weeks the the music is stellar and I'm so-so. Other other weeks, other aspects of the service are drop-dead gorgeous and and some other part uh, comes undone. It's the human experience. There is no such thing as perfection in one's job, in in, in one's profession, in one's life, in one's marriage, in one's schooling. There's no such thing as perfection and if you think you have it and try to lock it in, just wait a minute. It is not what we want that causes us trouble. It is not our aspirations for good that causes trouble. It isn't the stuff even that we acquire along the way that causes us trouble. The trouble is us wanting to freeze it down as though it's trapping a bug in amber for all time. That's the trouble. The trouble is, when we have something that we like, we want that thing, that person, that experience, that body, that job, that whatever, to stay effortless forever, because we had it that one time. This is going to be our undoing. Here's what Pima Chodron says about this idea. She says, when we resist the changeable nature of life, it's called suffering. But when we can completely let go, when we cannot struggle against it, when we can embrace the groundlessness of our situation, when we can relax into the dynamic quality of life, that's called enlightenment. 
we awaken to our true nature, to the true fundamental nature of both change and goodness. Another word for this is freedom. Freedom from struggling against the fundamental ambiguity that is the human condition. There's never going to be a finite answer for us. There's never going to be a perfect pattern that is sustainable. And if you think about it, there probably shouldn't be. We're always in flux. Our desires are always in flux. We always have an idea of how some piece of our life could be improved upon. We, we all have an idea of, of maybe how we could give back to the planet more if we had more, more time or if we put more energy into something. We all have an idea of how to make our personal experience and the universe a better place. If it weren't for change, those things could never happen. We have to actually welcome change. We have to look forward to change. We have to be willing to allow those, uh, <laughs> what do I want to say, those good things that we want to keep them trapped in amber. We have to be able to let them loose to experience more. This is truly our nature, to be in the midst of change and not resisting it, perhaps even inviting it. So this book is going to lead us through three common Buddhist practices and sets of intentions over the next three weeks, but I want to give us a clue before, before we get there. We're going to start off on that with next week. I want to give you a very handy piece of wisdom that I got from just the introduction of this book. It has to do with our emotions. Our emotions are a wonderful signpost to tell us when we're in resistance to change. So for example, how do you think um, being upset about maybe a change in work, how does that first kind of hit you, right? Let's say maybe a new coworker has come in and your boss has just glibly said something like, oh, and by the way, um, I've asked the new person to sit with you so that you can train her, <laughs> right? It's like, what happens? Well, most of us, there'd be a little tightening in, a, in our chest, right? Because suddenly there's this idea of, great, I have to do my work and, right? So there's that moment of resistance, and it may come up as anger, it may come up as discomfort, but that is that little piece of a trigger, that's that little bit of an emotion that's the clue that we're in resistance. Let's say that maybe our spouse or a loved one has just done something totally outlandish, Maybe without any uh, talking about it, they just brought a puppy into the house or they, they, they bought a new car or something, you know, something that should have been discussed, right? What, what happens first? Before you even think about the merits of what was done, isn't there that feeling of maybe it's betrayal, maybe it's upset? These emotions are very useful and I did a little independent research and was startled by something that I want to read to you. This is from uh, Jill Bolte's book. Uh, she's a neuroscientist, and this is for her book called My Stroke of Insight. She says, and I'm going to read this whole section because I think it's huge for us. I define responsibility as the ability to choose how we respond to stimulation coming in through our sensory systems. Although there are certain limbic systems or emotional programs that can be triggered automatically 
It takes less than 90 seconds for one of these programs to be completely triggered, surge through our body, and then be completely flushed out of our bloodstream. And she gives an example. My anger response, for example, is a programmed response that can be set off automatically due to circumstances. Once triggered, the chemicals released by my brain surge through my body and I have a physiological experience of anger. Within 90 seconds, however, from the initial trigger, the chemical component of my anger has completely dissipated from my blood. She goes on to say, if I remain angry after 90 seconds have passed, it is because I have chosen to let that circuit run. Did you know this? It's like, why aren't we trained this in, I don't know, grade school? When we are angry, when we are sad, when we feel betrayed, when we have any of those strong negative emotions, the first 90 seconds we can, we can write that off to you know, our limbic system. But if you're pissed off for three days around something that your spouse did, I got to tell you, <laughs> all but the very first minute and a half of it, it's you making you pissed off. <laughs> If you're sad, if you're feeling betrayed, it's like the first little bit of it, absolutely. The animal part of us, and it's probably a good thing, right? Because the emotions that we feel hopefully prompt us to do something that's beneficial. So if we're angry, ideally within that first 90 seconds, we'd go, oh, wow, this thing happened. Is there something I need to do about it? That's why I'm feeling angry. And so the anger in itself, if we choose to act upon it in a, in a productive way, this is a good thing. The same with sadness, the same with, uh, with any kind of strong emotion. It gives us a 90-second window, ideally, where we go, oh, my God, I need to protect my child. I need to, need to say no to what's happening. You know, I need to get in the car and get out of here, whatever it is that might keep us safe or, or, or help us to, uh, to prevail when that's necessary or to speak up for ourselves. That's why the emotions are there. But if we're going to choose not to do anything, how helpful is just feeling pissed off for a week? How helpful is being sad for an extended period of time? How helpful is it off to keep maintaining that idea of betrayal or being used up? I don't think they're particularly useful. If we're not going to act on them, if it's not useful other than having us maintain this negativity, this is what Pima Chodron is talking about. This is us just being almost on purpose resistant to what's going on, to the changes that are happening. This is our own negativity. Can you guess where your homework is headed for this week? <laughs> so I tried, this, I tried this out on myself this week, and this was why I, I found this 90-second rule so powerful. What I would like you to do for this week to get us ready for next week when we really start moving into uh, three key Buddhist ideas and practices, this week I would like you simply to notice when you have a strong emotional reaction to something. 
So, so it may, might only happen once or twice this week. I don't know. It depends maybe on your triggers and, and what's going on in your life. But I want you to be very sensitive to when you feel angry, when you feel put upon, when you feel, feel beleaguered, you know, any of the kind of strong, reactive kind of emotions, uh, you know, pissed off or betrayed or whatever it is. I want you to notice it, and I want you to evaluate it using the 90-second rule. And I want you just to ask yourself, after a few minutes, is me feeling angry, is me feeling sad, is me feeling betrayed, is me feeling this useful anymore? The, the chemical reaction has already gone out of your body. At that point, you can choose to feel something different. And that's all I want you to do for this week. We don't have to do any corrective action. <laughs> I just want it to be awareness of this week. I want you to be aware when you are in resistance to change, when something that has happened, some change has been thrust upon you or, or entered in your, your, your horizon, I simply want you to notice how you feel about it, notice what the emotion is, and pay attention to the 90-second rule, are you keeping it alive beyond when your body would say pay attention? Okay? I'm going to close today with a quote from Living Beautifully and a Prayer and uh, just a slight taste of, of what we have going this month because I think we're going to have some real fun with this book. Um, the idea, some of the ideas of Buddhism are around making, I would say, a sacred contract with ourselves. So each, uh, each Sunday for the rest of the month, we're going to make a little bit of a self-promise, if you will, to begin looking at the world a little differently and maybe modifying our behavior. And the promise of this book is by doing three simple changes in our thinking in our lives, that truly the idea of living beautifully, no matter what comes our way, is the answer, is the promise here. So we're going to, over the month, we're going to make three simple changes, three maybe new ways even of just looking at things, and life will simply get easier. So here's our quote, and then I'll end with a prayer. She says, rather than living a life of resistance and trying to disprove the basic situation of impermanence and change, we can contact the fundamental ambiguity of life and welcome it in. We can turn toward it and say, this is what freedom is like. This is what the freedom from a closed heart is like. This is what unbiased, unfettered goodness feels like. I can go beyond my resistance and experience the goodness that is in change. Let us pray. There is one power, there is one presence, there is one life. This one thing that I happen to call God is present in all. Every person, every place, everything, every situation, all of it, all of it is God. I know this means me. I know that I have the opportunity for seeing the world through this lens of goodness. And I know this means change. I know that my life is full of changes, that each person here is changing in relationships, in, in work patterns, in life patterns, that, that change is the order of the day. And on this day, I embrace it. On this day, I know that every good thing has come about because of change. That the potential of each of our dreams is there only because the possibility of change exists. 
And so I give up my resistance and I invite each person in this room to recognize that resistance is is no place in our lives, that we embrace each day as it comes. We we embrace even the changes that on the surface seem seem painful or seem awkward, knowing that we, we just move through them, that we experience the upset for 90 seconds, that we, we experience the, the intense feeling of, of sadness or rage. Yes, we experience it. That's good. It's good, and it passes. And I am simply grateful for this awareness. I'm grateful for this teaching. I'm grateful for God showing up as the many faces, the many hearts, and the many hands in this room. I just let it be. And together we say, and so it is. Thank you so much for being here today. I know we're going to have fun this month.